history doesn't have to repeat itself and that young adulthood is your big do-over and that you get to sort of reflect on what happened when you were younger and now what are you going to do about it as a young adult and as an adult that there's a lot of good there. Hello and welcome to the BBXX podcast, Let's Get Intimate. I'm your host, Sasha Laurie, and we're here to challenge the way our culture has conditioned us to talk and think about sexuality, intimacy, and healthy relationships. To question everything, to embark on a journey of self-understanding, and to begin to rewire some of the backwards thinking that we've absorbed from the subconscious influences that have shaped us all. Our hope for you, and for myself, and for all of us here at BBXX, who are on this journey with you every day, is that through a better understanding of our own identity, of who we are, and why we are that way, we can form deeper connections with other people and live healthier, more fulfilling relationships as a result. Join us as we change the conversation and the culture surrounding intimacy and relationships. And remember that better relationships equals a better life. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Excited to dive into your work, which covers a lot of different facets, different areas, but at the same time, in a way that create a really interesting overlap that we'll kind of explore throughout the interview of this relationship between our childhoods and kind of periods of development in youth into young adulthood and how both of those kind of different formative years and the ways, kind of the things that happen to us and the way that we react to them tend to then later on shape our adult lives. So I'd love to to have you start out by talking to us a bit about the word normal and what that means to you. At BBXX, a lot of times we talk about doesn't normal even exist. Normal doesn't exist. But at the same time, a lot of times people just want to feel that they are normal and want to engage in these types of conversations to know they're not the only ones with that question, that insecurity, doubt, that experience. And so I would be curious to hear, what does normal mean to you? Normal is a word that whenever I hear my clients say it, I think, oh my, here we go. So that it usually means, so I guess what it means to me is maybe not as important as what it means to my clients. And so what I usually hear normal used, it's in the context of something they're not or something they want to be of, well, the way I grew up wasn't normal or the problems I have, they're not normal or I just want my life to be normal. And we could talk all day about from a research statistical perspective, you know, what's normal and in some cases normal is average, which is like a statistical phenomenon rather than like an actual thing. An average is just an average of a whole bunch of things that aren't actually average. (laughs) And so I think what they're often doing is comparing themselves to some stereotype of what they imagine is the majority. And that's usually what I take up with clients is that 
often what they're thinking of is the majority. It's not just a question of, hey, you don't have to be part of the majority. Usually the issue is what they think the majority is, is not correct. So, for example, people will say, classic example out of Supernormal, growing up with alcoholic parents, my upbringing wasn't normal. I just wish my parents were normal. And so, sure, from a statistical perspective, the percentage of people who grow up with parents who are alcoholics is bigger than you think, but it's under 50%. So they're sort of right that that's maybe, quote, not normal. Yet, if we look at the percentage of kids who grow up with something like that, then by far the majority has grown up with a significant adversity. So maybe it was having alcoholic parents or having a sibling with mental illness or having a parent who was in jail or whatever the case may be. When you put all those together, all those little, quote, minorities are the majority. So what's actually the statistical minority are these people who grew up with problem-free lives. So we kind of unpack what are you imagining normal is, and then is that actually accurate? I think it's funny, and I would encourage people listening in to ask themselves and consider kind of what your definition of normal is and where it has come up in your life, whether it is experiences with adversity in childhood or later on in life in terms of identity, or I know specifically in events and conversations we have about sex and sexuality. People think they're the only one with a question, think they're the only one with some certain thing, and it is so normal to be confused, to have questions, to have not had good education or awareness about any of these topics. And so it seems like a lot of people, we tend to focus on what we are not, or what we don't have versus if we were to accumulate all the things that we are and the experiences we did have as a child, feeling awkward or feeling lonely or being embarrassed by certain things, we probably would have way more in common, way more that is normal than those things that we focus on that are different. And I loved that quote, how you said, an average is just the average of a bunch of things that are not average. (laughs) I don't know if you'll find it in a statistics textbook phrased quite that way, but I'm giving it to you in layperson terms. It really like helps convey the kind of silliness of it all. It's one reason I wrote Supernormal and I wrote it the way that I wrote it. So the book as covers the 10 most common adversities that people grow up with. And I named some of them, parents who are alcoholics, mental illness in the home, abuse in the home, having a parent in jail, growing up with domestic violence. So the, the reason that I did the book the way that I did, I cover all of the 10 most common, and I'm kind of telling a meta story around them, is because if we just silo all these groups off, then that's what leads people to feeling like, I'm this teeny tiny little damaged and different segment of the population. But if you put them all in a book together, it adds up to far more than 50% of the population growing up with one or more of these. And so I wanted to really upend this concept of normal and say, okay, if we're going to talk about the majority and we're going to call that normal, 
I don't know if it's desirable, but it's certainly normal to grow up with adversity and that more people are than not. And if you put them all in the same book together and you put all the percentages together, you realize, well, then statistically speaking, that's what's normal. And when one person comes to me at a time and they tell their story behind closed doors, they feel very abnormal. They feel like I have to go to a psychologist and only you could understand me. No one else could understand this. And I have eight people a day saying that. And you realize somebody needs to get the conversation out from behind closed doors into a book where you realize, oh, and many many of your listeners have probably had this experience where they'll meet a roommate or a friend or a coworker And they didn't grow up with the same experience or the same adversity, but they get it, like what it was like to grow up with adversity and then to figure out now what for me, what does that mean about me? What does that mean about my future? And so there's really, like you said, more commonality in the experience of growing up with an adversity than there are differences which is why I wanted to put them all in one book. Right. That was taking on a lot. But I think it was so important to kind of make that point out those similarities, because as you're saying, okay, it's normal to have dealt with adversity in childhood, at least one thing. Some people maybe had two or three of these different adversities that you list out in the book. But at the end of the day, some of the coping mechanisms, some of the feelings inside that develop, the not feeling understood, feeling isolated. There's so much in common there. And even just as an example with having a parent with mental illness, that mental illness could look like so many different things. And so that's one category that could look totally different. That has so many categories, right? Right. For so many different people. So you actually might be able to even relate across categories more than within. And so I think that was really, yeah, important to kind of bring that all together. You mentioned some of your patients that inspired this work. I'd love to have you just touch a bit more on to kind of the inspiration behind it. And then we discuss a bit what normal means and would love to hear what super normal means to you. Like I said, where my two books so far have come from is when I have people coming in again and again saying, I'm alone with this. I'm the only one. I'm the only one. I had a quite an extended period of time of, well, I mean, I specialize in young adults, but I had quite an extended period of time of young adults who were grappling with issues in childhood, which is speaking of normal, quite normal that you don't talk about it or reflect on it or kind of figure out what it means for you until young adulthood. So people will say, well, that's funny. You specialize in young adults, but here you've written this book that's all about people's childhoods. And actually it's about young adults coming to terms with their childhoods because that's when we do it. So You would be surprised for someone who specializes in adults kind of between the ages of 20 to 40. I usually am the person who is the first person someone has told about abuse in the home or being homeless or a parent committing suicide that maybe these things are kind of known publicly or not, but oftentimes in early adulthood is the first time people stop and reflect and unpack it. And that often happens in offices like mine. So I've learned a lot from listening to people. And I guess I just felt really 
protective of my clients and inspired by them and really wrote the book for them that these are, I mean, my clients are smart, interesting, together, compelling. I mean, I just care about them and like them so much. And so often they feel so different, so damaged. It's hard for them to imagine who would ever want to be with me. How could I be a good parent when my own parents were so awful? How could I have a good marriage when the one I saw was so bad? How could I be successful when I came from nothing? And that makes me crazy on their behalf. And I want to not just say to them, but also to all the people out there thinking and feeling similar things, that history doesn't have to repeat itself and that young adulthood is your big do-over and that you get to sort of reflect on what happened when you were younger. And now, what are you going to do about it as a young adult and as an adult? That there's a lot of good there, I think, that people don't realize. They see kind of, or they perceive the damage and the differentness, and they don't see all the amazing strengths and just how compelling a lot of these people and stories are. So that was really, so those are the clients I'm talking about. One of the people in the book, I just visited with her recently. She was just in town. But she was sexually abused by a coach, which is interesting that now that's very much in the conversation. And so anyway, I just learned so much from my clients and want to give back to them, but also to everyone out there who doesn't have a therapist or couldn't afford one or doesn't want one. And so often I think they see what's been done to them, but not all the amazing things that they've managed to do in response. And it was interesting because there was that one line in there, how could I be successful? And it took me back to this quote in the book that you mentioned that the normal man is not a likely candidate for the Hall of Fame. (laughs) Right, right. So ironically. I, I know. The whole thing really doesn't make sense, which is why I try to just completely debunk all these misconceptions that my clients or people like my clients have. Supernormal is not a book about famous people. It's a book about everyday people. But I tell the stories here and there of famous people, Oprah Winfrey or, gosh, I'm forgetting who all, Johnny Carson or Barack Obama. Barack Obama. And talk about how Maya Angelou and um, just to kind of help people see that they're actually in very good company. There was the study, the ACE study, the adversity. Adverse childhood experiences. Uh huh. Adverse childhood experiences study that kind of started uncovering. And I believe, I recall, if I call, recall correctly, the researchers were surprised by their own findings. Yeah. So the ACEs study, this is a very famous line of work that began ugh, about, I guess, about 30 years ago now. And it actually came out of like a questionnaire with Kaiser Permanente. I mean, this was a health questionnaire with a huge group. I mean, tens of thousands of quite middle-class individuals because it was part of their health information. And for whatever reason, they decided to, this was sort of new at the time, give them a checklist of have you ever experienced? And it was some of the things I've mentioned, you know, abuse in the, talking about when you grow up, abuse in the home, alcoholism in the home, mental illness in the home, et cetera. 
And they were very surprised to find that I think 75%-ish of these very middle-class adults had experienced one or more of these. And that if you've experienced one of these, you're much more likely to have experienced two and three and four because sometimes they cluster. A parent starts drinking and then abuse enters and then there's divorce. And so so this was a big surprise back in the 80s or 90s when this research was first being done. And we kind of imagined that, well, those problems are, that's what happens with other people, that, that this isn't kind of a these aren't mainstream phenomenon, but they really are. And so now I think that the ACE work is very well known, which I think is fantastic. Yet part of the reason I wanted to write Supernormal is that a lot of people know about the ACEs and they go take the questionnaire and they say, oh my gosh, I have six out of 10 of these. I'm done for. And so, so we haven't talked about, okay, the ACEs are widespread, but that doesn't mean that your life is, you're doomed or you can't be a good parent. You can't have a partner. You're destined to have a lifetime of mental and physical health problems. That is not what where this has to go. And that second part of the conversation, I think, is still gaining traction. And that was really what Supernormal was intending to get going. And the what does then that name for you, Supernormal, mean? Supernormal. So that was an, a word that jumped out at me. I really knew the book I wanted to write because I had a dozen clients sort of in mind as really prototypical examples of this kind of meta story that they were telling me with different backgrounds, but same story. And so I was doing all the research on what we knew about resilience and adversity over the past 50 years or so. And in some of the early stuff, it was interesting because they talked about kind of super kids or they just talked about them as kind of super normal. And that jumped out at me, maybe not for reasons your listeners might be thinking, not because I thought it's so simple that they're just these super heroic kids who nothing bothers them and nothing gets them down. Quite the contrary, what I liked about the word about super normal is that what it actually literally means is a phenomenon that's difficult to explain. And so I really wanted to flip the conversation from abnormal to supernormal, but not in some simplistic way of like, hey, glass half full, look at you go. I mean, that's a little too simplistic. But to say, what if you're have experienced a lifetime that's a little bit different to explain, that it's not something we can pin down to one or two qualities that made you quote, a super kid. But what if it's something that's more complicated than that, but that still like can be owned as something that's quite amazing and something that's quite phenomenal, rather than it being something that's necessarily all bad or all good. And I think the name in itself, too, is I love that concept of a phenomenon difficult to explain that despite adversity, some people become stronger or succeed, more likely to succeed, all that sort of stuff. And kind of that superhero-esque vibe, but at the same time balanced out by the fact that this is something normal and 
you don't have to kind of be a superhero. You can be that person in your office feeling like they're the only one or that there's nothing special about them. But in fact, there is. Yeah, well, it's that was something. I think the reason those metaphors jumped out at me and super normal jumped out at me is that what was interesting was that something that almost every one of my clients talked about when they were younger was that they really identified with a superhero. And I mean, maybe that's true for many slash most kids, but that that sort of identity was useful to them in particular when they were sort of engaging in fight or flight to get their way out of this period of time. And what I liked about it, the more I researched it, I think early on when people were trying to grab those metaphors for resilient kids, like they're super kids, like the bullets just bounce off that that's a little too simplistic. But as superheroes have evolved and the stories have become more complicated, like we could like take a deep dive here and go from like DC to Marvel because I had to do all that research for the book. But as superheroes became more complicated, a la Spider-Man and beyond, that they were complicated characters, that they weren't just faster than a speeding bullet and able to leap buildings in a single bound, that they both had these powers that they didn't understand and they didn't know why they were able to be so strong and it wasn't always easy and maybe they're out saving people, but they come home to an empty home and never managed to find love. I mean, that they're also out there really struggling. And so I think that was a metaphor that worked for me or that I felt like did justice to my client's struggles is that they don't feel like superheroes in the sense that nothing touches them and they have all these amazing powers. They feel more like, wow, I've lived my life in fight or flight and I'm trying to figure out how to just be a person. And I feel like that in a way is a bit of a quest for most of the superheroes out there these days of how do you ever get the quote normal life if you're spending your days fighting battles and leaping over buildings? Do you ever just get to come home and be loved? And that's really the question for a lot of my clients. And a lot of, for superheroes, it all goes back to their childhood and their childhood experiences. And you specifically give that example of Superman in the book and how kryptonite is his Achilles heel, his one weakness. And it is that because it's the one thing that ties him back to his childhood. It's from the place he came from. It's the reminder of what he didn't have or what he left behind or what he was missing in his life. And so that each of our own weaknesses being whatever it was that happened that did or didn't happen that we didn't get in our childhood. And you touched on this earlier, how not until a bit later in life do we tend to start really putting together the patterns of these and hopefully beginning to try to process and unprocess and rewire our brain in terms of these things that happen. But I also tend to joke that our adulthood seems to just be unlearning (laughs) and like dealing with everything that happened to us in our childhood. Well, I mean, for a lot of people it is, but that's what's so fantastic. And I've seen that so many times. I'll 
I'm going to say something about Superman and then try to remind me to switch to this parable I want to mention now. But I love that. So I got some great quotes about Superman and kryptonite out of a David Mamet, some little three-page essay I found. I mean, I went deep background on this topic for this book. And, but, you know, he said something about Superman was faster than a speeding bullet, but he could never outrun his past. And I think so many super normals, so many of my clients feel that way. I mean, it really resonates with me, that idea with Superman that you can be all these great things, but sometimes it's those things from our childhood that have the power to really sap us. But talking about how adulthood is when you figure out, like, how do I unlearn this? How do I do it differently? There's a great parable that a minister told me, and it it goes like this, that there's a minister in his office, and he's got two adult brothers in his office, and they grew up with an alcoholic father. And one of the adult brothers is really upstanding man, and he's a great dad and a great partner, great guy, sober, I mean, abstinent. And the other brother is an alcoholic like his dad. And the minister says to the brothers, why do you think you've turned out the way you have? And they both had the same answer. And that was, well, given the way I grew up, how could I not? And so one brother sees, well, given the the way I grew up, how could I not repeat that? But the other brother sees, given the way I grew up, how could I ever repeat that? And not to say it comes down to a simple matter of choice, but what I like about that parable, and I've seen it in my office so many times, some of the best parents that I've worked with have grew up with not so great parents. And they were quite determined to do it differently. And I think when you help people click into that, especially in young adulthood or middle adulthood, this is your chance to do it differently. And there's no reason that history has to repeat itself. That's incredibly empowering and often quite a revelation. I think people, it's a bit overdone, this sense that the cycle of everything has to repeat because it doesn't. I think just in terms of helping people recognize and see themselves in these stories, and I think that was one of the most interesting things. When I first heard in another interview of yours, the book mentioned, I thought, oh, wow, that's really interesting. And then started reading the book and realized, oh, wow, this is a lot about my life. And (laughs) Have we met? Like, whoa, I didn't really, it wasn't, you know, you read the description or hear about it, but then you dive deeper and... Again, it's that thing where you don't recognize yourself immediately or you don't realize. And so helping people who are listening, most people have probably experienced. And I just pulled up here the 10 aces. I'm not sure if they're kind of you guys define them exactly the same. But for people who are wondering abuse, so physical abuse, emotional abuse or sexual abuse, neglect, be it physical neglect or emotional neglect, and household dysfunction. So mental illness, a parent treated violently, divorce, incarcerated relative, or substance abuse. So so those are some of them. There's obviously flexibility. And even some of the cases you mentioned in the book, it's hard to even put some of these necessarily into a category, but most of us will fit into one 
probably, you know, a lot of us two or more. And so just being able to see that and get a bit more self-awareness, because I think what happens, and at least for me is growing up, you feel so isolated because you don't understand what you're going through that most people you know aren't, or at least you think they aren't. Maybe later in life, you'll find out. So part of this isolation comes from, right, nobody can relate to me, or I can't even relate to what I'm going through because I don't necessarily understand it. But then later on in life, ironically realizing that that isolated feeling doesn't have to be there as much because there are so many of us who can relate to this. So I'm glad you brought that up. As you mentioned, there's a dozen or so client stories told in there quite in detail. And I unpack the adversities of alcoholism in the home and how common it is and what are the statistics there and what it looks like and what are the criteria. Because there are, like you're saying, a lot of people growing up, part of the sense of this isn't normal. Well, for one, no one's talking about it at school. So how would they know what other people are dealing with? But also that they don't know. Oh, honestly. Because you can't see anybody else's life. You're living your own life. And I once heard this where as a child or whatever, your family, whatever you're in, that is your normal. So you're like, yeah, this is just it. And then later you're like, what? So I read a lot of memoirs for this book. Because in a way, Supernormal, it's kind of the meta memoir of that it's sort of the overlay for what's going on in all those kind of trauma and resilience memoirs out there. So I have my favorites. And one of my favorites is Jay-Z's Decoded. It's an amazing book. And I'll never forget, he tells a story in there about how at some point in, I don't know, elementary school or middle school, he lived... Gosh, I won't get it right, but I think in the Marcy houses and the Bronx. And his poverty, I don't even think poverty is explicitly mentioned on this list, actually, But which I'm surprised by. Yeah, I mean, I think sometimes it, it depends on which list you're using. Sometimes it makes sense, sometimes it doesn't. And then sometimes people say, well, it's more about what's going on in the home than what is able to be provided. But anyway, he lived in Marcy houses. And I guess one of his teachers took a group of kids maybe on a field trip to her house. And he said he never, these were his words or a paraphrase of his words that he'd never known that he was poor until that day. And that talking about how you don't, whatever you are growing up with is normal, that he had never seen a house where people had the stuff she had. And that was kind of what started like the feelings of sort of shame or feeling inferior and that he hadn't until he saw that. And many of my clients have stories about if not first realizing it, but what it was like to go to other people's houses and see the contrast. So I have a client who told me a story about how when she was at a friend's house and the friend's sister's birthday was that night and the mom said, oh my gosh, girls, let's race out. We need to get some stuff. And they went to the mall and they bought a tennis racket and okay, here's a couple of shirts. And there was just no worries, no thoughts. Like we'll just grab up some birthday gifts nothing extravagant, just stuff. But then at her house, it was birthdays 
were a nightmare because it was always very stressful. If they couldn't afford presents or if they did, there was a lot of stress or guilt around that. And just what it was like to watch somebody just buy a birthday present without having to worry about it. And I think that perspective on one hand is so important in some cases, negative and positive, right? It can make us feel bad. It can make us realize that we are different, but at the same time can be so important for becoming a catalyst for change or opening our minds or realizing that there are other options. And so this importance of perspective and whether that's Again, in later on in life, the same thing goes if you're in an unhealthy relationship, for an example, having perspective is required to make you realize, oh, there are other options. And without that perspective, you will be in that situation, possibly thinking that it's normal and other people are also going through that. So that normalcy really plays different sides because, you know, when we're younger or something, you might think, I'm the only one having this experience, yet at the same time, people might end up in toxic relationships and think, oh, no, maybe this is normal. And so that importance of perspective that kind of plays at both ends. Yeah, I mean, normal and ordinary. I mean, that was really why I, you know, the title of the book being super normal. I just really wanted to play with all those terms of um, you know, kind of where the book ends up because none of my clients become, I mean, I talk about rock stars and presidents and whatever, but none of my clients are becoming that. But what they end up enjoying is how extraordinary the ordinary is, that just how great it is to be able to buy a birthday present and not feel guilty about having spent the money or how great it is to come home at the end of the day and just sit down and have dinner with your partner and watch TV and there aren't any plates flying across the room. And just that's, I think, people whose lives are, quote, already normal or ordinary take for granted how amazing those things feel, like how extraordinary the ordinary is if you haven't had it. I know a client who talks about how every time she gets a flat tire and she can just pay for it. it. She feels like the richest person on earth because there was a time in her life when that would have been the cascade of, well, this is going to have to go on my credit card and then I'm going to be overdrawn because I'll have to pay it off and then I can't get food. It's just that she was on such thin margins. So what I love about both Supernormal, the book, but also my clients is, I mean, many of them have become quite, I mean, more successful than their peers on average, probably because they know so much about scrapping and fighting for what they need and what they want. And so professionally, they might be very successful. But what's really great to watch, I mean, usually they're already successful by the time they get to my door. But what's great to watch is, especially in their personal lives, when they experience success and it's along the lines of, wow, I just get to have a partner and there's no drama or I take my kids to the park and I never even thought that I could be a parent after the way I was parented. Just the joy that they get in the ordinary is really amazing. 
Simple Pleasures. It has that name for a reason, definitely. And kind of as you watch some of your patients later on in life, kind of into young adulthood, into adulthood, begin to grow into themselves, it sounds like they tend to take advantage or have this deeper appreciation for certain things. How does this then begin to cross over kind of the work you did for Supernormal and the work you did for your other book, The Defining Decade, which you've just re-released? How does that work kind of cross over? Yeah. So The Defining Decade came first. So that came out the first edition in 2012. So the kind of the updated 10-year anniversary-ish edition is out right and it just came out. And so that book is about young, it's about adult development and why your 20s are a developmental sweet spot. And it's a great time to get started on the life that you want for a long list of reasons that we could go into. But one of the, one of, one of the people I write about in the defining decade is a classic supernormal that most of the people are right in the defining decade. They're trying to figure out what should I do for work? And how do I find a partner that suits me or that I deserve? Or how do I think about the next 10 years of my life? So it's very much a how to get started in adulthood book. But one of the people that I write about, I think in the book, I call her Emma. It's about that she grew up with quite a bit of adversity. And she has that realization in her 20s that this is her chance to do it differently. And that if she can find a better partner than and enjoy a better partnership than her parents did, or get herself on more solid footing, that she could have a better life going forward, that this is her do-over. And so to me, I mean, I love all my clients in the defining decade. I mean, I would say in my heart of hearts, Emma was really the one that I was in a way pulling for the most because she had kind of had worked the hardest to get where she was. And I was just really rooting for her do-over. And I would say that client, that chapter was the kind of the seed of Supernormal and that Supernormal is really a whole book about that. So, I mean, both books, they're very different books, but they're really both about how young adulthood, 20 to 35, 20 to 40-ish, is really a time to create the life that you want. And so let's get these conversations out in the open, help people figure out what is it you think you want? What are you afraid you're not going to get? What are you not sure how to do? And let's figure out how to do this. And for some people, defining decade people, the thing is, I don't know how to find a job. I don't know what I want to do. I don't know how to get a good date. I mean, that's very much a, it's a very popular kind of graduation book or a young adult starting out book. But Supernormal is a little bit next level. And then it's, I don't know how to, quote, be normal. I don't know how to be happy. I don't know how to live without dysfunction in my life. That it's taking up slightly, I don't know if it's more serious issues, but it's taking up issues around adversity and trauma rather than kind of everyday struggles that 20-somethings have. And I think this kind of idea of the defining decade or defining years of our 
lives can happen multiple times in some people's lives, can happen at different points in some people's lives. For example, if you did face a lot of adversity really young in life, maybe you had to grow up quickly and become more independent. Maybe you actually got to that point faster or maybe as a result of that adversity, you were unfairly kind of denied certain opportunities that would have helped you get to that point. And so, and then obviously other life choices and things more within the individual's control can come into play where sometimes you might have some people in their 20s going through some of these changes or these kind of journeys of self understanding, like you said, beginning to look back and reflect on the way we were raised and some of the things in the ways that they have influenced us and still affect us. But then you have people who later on in their 30s, this might be happening or in their 50s, maybe having kind of it happen for the first time or even a rebirth. Oh, yeah. Well, I hope I'm way out of my 20s. But I'd love to have you speak to kind of some of these categories or some of these, I guess, journeys, I'll call them, of the self that we go through that are a part of those defining moments, years or that decade, regardless of at what point in your life it happens. Yeah, so that title, The Defining Decade, I mean, where, so like I said, the book came out in 2012. And where the title came from, it was really kind of a pushback against what I perceived to be, and I'm a Gen Xer, so I had just finished my 20s when I started working with 20-somethings as a clinical psychologist. So by the time I wrote the book, For the last 20 years, I'd either been in my 20s or I'd been working with 20-somethings. And so what I perceived was a real sort of cultural trivialization of the 20s, that it was this kind of, you know, it's just all fun and games and nothing serious happens. And that it was that I felt like 20-somethings were being played small and being misled to a certain extent that you hear like 30 is the new 20, which on the one hand, is statistically true-ish and that our big developmental milestones like finding a partner or getting sort of job security or figuring out where what state we're going to live in or whether we're going to have kids, that those are happening closer to 30 now than they are to 20. So no argument there in that 30 is the new 20 in that way. But the message around that was is that because of that, what happened in your 20s doesn't matter sort of 30s and new 20, that you could just go to sleep at 20, wake up at 30 and start and get everything you want. And so that, both in my office, in the research, wasn't quite bearing out. And we were missing out, I think, in that messaging that 20-somethings were being trivialized and they were missing out on the messaging that, hey, this is a real developmental sweet spot. Maybe the awesome thing about not getting married young and not figuring out everything when you're so young is that you could really get out there and get in front of life's biggest decisions if you're paying attention and you're taking them seriously. But that's not going to happen if we just pat 20-somethings on the head and say, oh, you're not really grown-ups. Don't worry. Your life won't start till you're 30. So I felt like it was leading to some missed opportunities for 20-somethings. But Some of the research in there, there was a cool study that I was sort of referencing for the title, and it was about how the upshot of it was that I think it was 75% of life's most defining moments happened by age 35. 
And of course, there's not like a cliff there. It's not like at 35, you're defining moments stop happening. I wrote my first book after 35. I gave my TED Talk after 30. A lot of big things for me have happened after 35. But the point is, is that a lot of the things that end up affecting everything that comes after, they tend to happen. The big chunk of them happen before 35. And so my message to 20-somethings is, I don't know when your defining decade starts and when it ends exactly, but if you're in your 20s anywhere, you're probably somewhere in there. So consider that what you're doing can have a big impact for the better on what's ahead, that it's a time when just, hey, maybe you don't have a partner and you don't have kids and you don't have a mortgage. This is your chance to take some job risks or to really try to learn something about relationships before you choose one. And so that was kind of the where that title and that concept came from. But of course, I might have told you this in a previous conversation we had, but I had a friend who went to a 20th high school reunion and she saw a friend of hers and he said, oh, I just read the best book. It's completely changed the way I think about my life. And she said, well, what is it? And he said, it's the defining decade. And so she being my friend said, that book's for 20 somethings. And he said, no way, man, it's for everybody. And so it's really the, the book is about adult development. I just targeted it to 20 somethings of, hey, the sooner you get this information, the better, but it all of it applies. I've had people write and say they're parents of 20 somethings and they read it because of their kids, but then it applied to their career reboot. It applied to their second marriage. It applied to them thinking about how they're thinking about their next 10 years. And so it all continues to apply. Right. Cause you have, it's about that mentality too. And that kind of time is infinite and our learning or experiences or the things that will need to happen will come, which on one hand, we can't rush things. You can't force things, but taking that initiative. And so the example that just came to mind is people who plan to do everything later when they retire for example. So delaying that and delaying that when perhaps reading this book or coming to some of these realizations and thinking, oh no, I need to kind of make more happen now. I can't push these things off or maybe I don't want to and kind of be taking advantage of your own time and your own kind of development and getting on that journey, whatever it might be for you at that point in your life. Yes, I appreciate you saying that. To me, the book is entirely about time. And I'm sure readers read it and think, what? (laughs) But it actually, the whole thing is about time. And it's about how we perceive time. And that if you... Yeah, as in being infinite. And that later, 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 there's the present bias of, well, I'll do what feels good now and I'll deal with the other stuff later. But then you, that same person eventually gets to later and you have to deal with the stuff that was for later. There was a cool study that I talk about in the book by Laura Karstensen out at Stanford. And long story short, she was interested in why or in how 20-somethings think about saving for retirement, which is generally not a pressing issue in my office. Usually it's, how do I get my first job? But the method was fascinating in that she had one group of the sample see themselves in a digital mirror, just themselves, a, a digital representation of their current selves. And the other group looked in a digital mirror and they saw a digital representation of themselves when they were old. 
And the people who saw themselves age then set aside twice as much money for retirement. And there's a great quote about how something like not thinking about your future self as a failure of belief or imagination. And it's just that I think a lot of times it's hard for us to believe, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm ever going to be 30 or 40 or 60, or I can't believe I'm ever going to have kids or that they'd ever be older. And that that's just the way the brain works. I mean, we're evolutionarily more programmed to make sure that we make it through the day. So it's quite a stretch to help people think in five and 10 and 20 year spans. And that's true if you're 20 and that's true if you're 40, that people have to help you plan for your future self. And it's it doesn't come naturally, but a lot of that is what the book is about, of getting people accustomed to thinking beyond semester-sized chunks, which is kind of how our brains learn to think. It was interesting. I hadn't heard of that study, but had a feeling that exactly what you were going to say was that they saw themselves age. And because I've read up a lot on kind of mortality awareness and how that can be an agent for change or also for people's willingness to both accept and give love and all sorts of this thing where being reminded that life is fleeting or fragile or time is limited can be so powerful, yet is very easy to ignore at the same time in the kind of safe, protected worlds that we... Well, we um, used to live in. As much during yes. COVID, but you know, that we Actually, used to I've gotten a lot of emails this year. I would say they've fall, defining decade-related emails have fallen into two buckets. One, people will email me and say, oh my gosh, the pandemic is going to mess with my defining decade. I'm sunk. Not true. Okay. Plenty of time to recover. And you could be doing all, you know, maybe something you learn or a podcast you listen to because you're stuck at home on the pandemic could end up changing your life for the better more than some job you might have thought you'd had. But the other bucket has been people who've said, this has really made me realize you don't always know how things are going to go or that there isn't something around the corner that's going to disrupt your plans. And I need to think a little bit more about how I'm using my time and what I'm doing. And I'm kind of mapping it out. And as soon as the world opens, I'm ready to start my life. And that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, I like that. It's, I was realizing kind of in this mortality awareness, I realized that on that ACE list, I read losing somebody loss wasn't on there. I wonder if later having experienced a pandemic as a child might make it onto <laughs> a childhood university. <laughs> There's a lot of concern among parents that this is going to be sort of damaging or derailing for their kids and their education. And to be honest, and I say the same thing to people, 20-somethings especially, who email me about their careers, that we just don't know that catastrophic thinking is the most common thinking error in uncertain times. So anytime something's uncertain, our brain tends to do the worst case scenario thinking, and that's protective. So we can imagine and prepare for the worst. But oftentimes that doesn't turn out to be the way things actually go. So there's still a lot of recovery time for kids, teens, young adults. Yeah. And this is kind of related, but just something that came to me was one of the little tidbits from your book that I actually found extremely interesting was this part about secrecy and talked about these studies where 
if something had happened to you, if you had experienced sexual abuse or hiding something, anything, it wasn't as much about, it showed that releasing that and putting it out into the open and telling people and talking about it could be hugely, hugely beneficial, could make all the difference. Granted that, it was received in the right way and that you were given support. There was an example, if you were going to get an abortion, for example, or something else, if you wanted to express your sexuality. Telling people about AIDS was one of the ones. Yes. And talking about kind of how their health statistics and so much of it was about the way it was received. And so how holding on to things and keeping things secret can essentially taint our health and be toxic. But so can if we do choose to share them, while it can be the most liberating and can be shown in health statistics and all of this and freeing mentally, physically, if it's not received well, then can also become very damaging. I just found that to be something really interesting. Yeah. And that's a great example of how a person and environment are always interacting. And so you've got on the one hand, the adversities that just intersect with your life for whatever reason that happen in your house through no or your community through no fault of your own. And then you've got the things that you may or may not be able to try to do in response. And then you've got how your community can or cannot support that or respond to you. It brings up another good line of research about how resilient kids and teens and young adults. So people who tend to sort of say, oh, I'm determined, I'm going to get through this, I'm going to fight my way out of this, which we see as one of the defining features of resilience is they tend to be kind of fighter scrappers, I'm going to make my way out of this, that I think there's a real misconception that people like that are unbothered by adversity when actually they're working very hard to deal with it. And that takes a physical and emotional toll. And that that toll is even greater in communities that can't support that. So like to give you a, a better example, if you live in a community, let's say your house has alcoholism and abuse and a lot of financial struggles, but the people around you maybe don't, or you go to schools where teachers say, hey, you know, there's this after school program. Why don't you stay here and hang out, spend more time at school? that it's easier for you to be able to capitalize what's around you. And so that resilience isn't as taxing, whereas people who are dealing with the same adversities, but so is their neighbor and so is their across the street neighbor and the schools are underfunded and there are no after school programs, that those kids are showing all the same, quote, resilient responses, but they're not getting the returns as quickly and that it's even more difficult to sort of fight and scrap in that situation. So it's a constant interplay between person and environment. And how one of the most important kind of predictors of, you know, I don't want to say success or that person, how they coped being the quality, also quantity, but I think particularly the quality of relationships specifically to adults, whether that's a teacher or a coach. Or an aunt or a grandmother. Well, yes. And that really, I mean, that's a great next point because, again, that misunderstanding is that resilient people are unbothered and it, and they are quite bothered. They are living their lives in fight or flight. They're working two jobs or 
staying up late to try to get the grades to get out and get to a good school or whatever the case may be, or they're moving across the country and changing their name and trying to start again. And so they're working quite hard to, quote, be resilient and that that's taxing on our brains and bodies, that they're still human. And so they're still feeling that living in fight or flight. And one of the most biologically calming influences in our lives are healthy relationships. I mean, think about from the time you're born, we're wired to be soothed by love and care and concern and like touch from other people. That's just the way we're wired. And so that's part of the reason why I'm super normal. There's a lot of emphasis on it's great to get out and become personally successful, but what about letting other people in and letting them soothe you and love you and care for you? Because that's how we downshift from fight or flight is we go, oh, I'm not alone. I don't have to fight all the time. I can be loved. That It sounds corny, but it's actually physiologically very important. Absolutely. And in our conversations on this podcast that I've had with other people, connection, close relationships comes up as the antidote to addiction. Here it comes up as the antidote to adversity. It's just so tied in. You know, we have conversations, although we talk about BBXX being about intimacy and relationships. Part of intimacy to me means close relationships, means connection. And what is that not related to? (laughs) Your relationships have to do with everything or and vice versa. Everything has to do with and or affects your relationships. And then the contrary, your relationships can help contribute to or defend against everything. So just, again, the importance of that kind of going through all of these different experiences. And I love that part about really recognizing that it's not easy and that maybe on the surface, some of these people look like they're coping really well and they're unaffected, but that doesn't mean that they are not affected. Oh, no. (laughs) That's why they're in my office, because they're exhausted and stressed and they feel alone and maybe they're drinking too much and they're working so hard to cope and they've managed to do it. And But I think especially for your podcast, for listeners to understand. I think by now we've all heard about how stressful situations raise our cortisol, our stress hormone levels. Like everybody gets that, right? What I think people don't really understand is the science behind the fact that soothing relationships reduce our, that it's the unwinding of the same science, that it sounds so corny. I mean, I have a PhD from Berkeley And I don't know that I ever thought I'd be on a podcast saying, love heals, but the science is there. And think about it, little babies, they cry. What do they need? They need someone to pick them up and rock them and soothe them, talk to them. That this is the way we're wired and that, sure, that people can grow up and not have relationships and find ways to calm themselves down. Absolutely. However, the shortest route to that is usually soothing relationships with other people, whether it's a friend or an aunt or a partner or a pet, that the science behind it is just the reverse of what we all understand about how our cortisol levels go up. Soothing, safe situations is how they go down. 
It's so interesting because I'm not the best self-soother. And so for me, stress, whether it's from work or anything life, it always helps being around other people. But people will say, oh, are you, how introverted, extroverted are you? And I say, I don't know. It's not, I'm not one to, I can just go to a party. I'm not looking to go meet any new person and any social situation. Absolutely not. It has to be the right people. It has to be my people. So I always get confused when people ask that. I'm like, I don't extroverted with a really big caveat. But now it it, it makes so much more sense because it's not even necessarily there's a biological reason. And the reason I am getting that reaction from my people is because they are the ones who kind of literally scientifically help lower my cortisol. Hashtag love heals. Absolutely. It's true. It's been scientifically shown. (laughs) Yeah. Amazing. And so again, yeah, just going back to recognizing that this can be cumulative and that it's even if people make it look easy, it isn't necessarily no athlete, no author, no super normal human isn't struggling at some point or another. And this kind of the mind-body connection, right? Talking about this cortisol and the health benefits or consequences. And there was this line that really stuck out in the book that childhood childhood adversity may be one of the leading causes of poor health in adulthood in the United States. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think few people would argue with that. And that came out of the ACEs was that that study with all the tens of thousands of middle class adults was what is going on with these illnesses? And what they found was that the more likely you were to have grown up with ACEs, the more likely you were to have physical and emotional health problems later, partly because our bodies do not want to live in chronic and cumulative stress. They're designed to kind of outrun the bear or run from the fire. But to, you know, as anyone who's grown up with an alcoholic knows, this is not a twice a year problem. This is a everyday problem or a twice a week problem for many years. But to come back to what we were just talking about around love heals, that, that adversity is cumulative. So we're talking about chronic cumulative adversity that's not like the earthquake, but living in poverty, it's, quote, death by a thousand cuts, that it adds up over time. And then you've got the equivalent of an earthquake after 10 years or 15 years. The flip side of that, again, the science of the unwinding of that is that the good things are cumulative too. And so what they have found is that especially for people who figure out and are supported in the do-over, getting themselves to safe situations with good people, kind of having enough to survive or more, that it's what's called the upward spiral, that that builds and accumulates and that you are basically unwinding, you know, years of adversity. And so... It absolutely can be done. That's how it is done. It may not happen overnight, but I have worked with more than my fair share of 25-year-olds who can't imagine how, I mean, all they remember is trauma and adversity, but I mean, now I've been at this more than 20 years, frighteningly, and I still hear from a lot of people who now they feel very much on the other side. They feel unwound, they feel 
completely on the other side. And it's not going to happen in a year. Maybe it'll happen in five years. Maybe it'll happen in a defining decade. That's right. So all that's cumulative, too. And we have to remember that the good adds up. That's great. Yeah, that's absolutely important. And just kind of a food for thought question for people listening is in a society where we perhaps have been raised not to show our emotions as much or be strong and not show ourselves as vulnerable or weak, how can that affect us later? And again, that reminder that it doesn't mean that we're not feeling anything or that the other person isn't struggling and the consequences that can have. And again, the way we use our language by saying, I'm so impressed that you seem fine or you're doing great by telling people they're handling things well by not showing it. Might we be congratulating people for keeping things in? And so just that whole kind of language and culture. Well, it was really, that was kind of a big reason I wrote Supernormal is to really mess with the way we talk about and think about resilience. And my number one pet peeve on the topic (laughs) is when people talk about resilience as bouncing back, that, okay, maybe you bounce back from having the flu, but people don't bounce back from having a parent in jail for five years or from being sexually abused by the coach. They do not bounce back. And they may look like it on the outside. And so the language there is that people... So many of my clients have complained slash cried to me over the years at feeling so misunderstood by people saying, wow, you just bounced right back or gosh, nothing ever gets to you. And it may look like it because they're getting A's or they're super successful, but little do they know that they're really struggling at home at night or they're relying a little bit too much on substances or they're really struggling with depression or whatever the case may be. And so I think this notion that resilience is this thing that people have and it's this quality and they're never bothered, we just need to stop thinking that way and certainly stop expecting that from people or misunderstanding people like that. I I remember one time a client told me that she told a teacher something about her life, that she had had a very difficult life in a very kind of difficult and impoverished part of the United States. And then I was at Berkeley at the time as a psychologist. And this student, my client, told her teacher about, well, now I'm at Berkeley, but this is where I came from. And her teacher said, this resonated well with her. Her teacher said, wow, you've really come a long way. And it was something about just the metaphor of that she got it, that this had been a long journey, that she had come a long way. As if it's over. Well, but also, but like, this is, you've really come a long way versus like, wow, you just, nothing impacts, nothing bothers you. That she actually, she liked that, that it was, which I remember thinking, and I think I've said to a few clients since then as a way to say, wow, you've really come a long way, which it kind of acknowledges the journey versus like, you're amazing. I think that kind of misses the journey. Right, right. Absolutely. And the importance, the whole, the good old, got to throw a few cliches in here. The good old, the journey is the destination. Tying it back and bringing it back to resilience was kind of just what I was going to ask you about. And this 
idea of what does it mean? It's not bouncing back. Is it a skill that you develop? Is it even a choice? Is it just something that that happens in order to get through the day? Is it even conscious or not? And there's this example in the book where a woman says, if the bo- a boat is going down and you jump off this boat into dangerous shark-infested waters and swim through and manage to escape, is that resilience or even bravery or whatever? Or is that just literally your only option? A lot of psychologists researchers especially, because that's where kind of the work is done with this word or this topic or that term, have just argued to just get rid of the word. (laughs) It is so problematic to define. It is so misunderstood in popular culture that it was very, when Supernormal came out, I was on a lot of radio shows and television and everybody said, okay, what is the one quality that my child needs to develop in order to be resilient? And if someone who's read Supernormal, there's so many things wrong with that statement. And so given that I can't unilaterally just get rid of the word and it's probably here to stay, I think it's what people should understand is the definition means adapting well after adversity. That's all it means. And so it's actually, if you think about it, it's a word like success that we don't, success is a thing and you kind of know it when you see it, but there's not like a quality of they're a success, you know, that they have success. It's just something we recognize as a good outcome. So, I mean, I think resilience, I think of it as adapting well, but again, like with many of my clients, some people adapting well in some ways, but they have room to grow in other ways, or it comes at the expense of other areas. And it can be a bit of a journey for that adapting well to be kind of evenly distributed in their lives. So, you know, there's definitely not one or two qualities to that are going to kind of insulate you from the problems of the world. It's just more about trying to adapt well, but that's something that usually happens over time. It takes a while. Yeah. And like success changing the way we talk about it and what we measure it by rather than it being money. Is it, do you measure success by progress? Do you measure success by fulfillment? Do you measure success by relationships? So many different ways. So just reframing and exactly. It just, what's the word? It's almost like resilience. I mean, it might as well go in the normal category that it's a word that it's just you know, success is one of those words too, that it's, what does it even mean? I don't even know. So many of my, one reason that I kind of don't use the word a lot in the book, I kind of say early on, it's a problematic word. Let's just talk in other terms is because with my clients early on, I would say, gosh, they would say I'm different, I'm damaged. And I would say something like, have you ever thought of yourself as resilient? And they would almost always say, if I was resilient, I wouldn't need you. And it was just this sense that resilience meant sort of perfection and being bulletproof. And it that alone was kind of what showed me that the word was just quite misunderstood. Yeah. And there was this one part in the book as well that where I think somebody might have brought up the word desperate. And are resilient, is being resilient and being desperate, you know, that different. And I found that to be a really, 
really interesting concept. I really resonated with that concept and found it interesting in terms of reframing and would encourage people listening in to find out where perhaps resilience or these what it might be mixed in with, what it might have stemmed from and what it might mean to you. And I think for everybody who's listening, who we have all, everyone in the world this past year have been faced with perhaps in getting through a pandemic, are we resilient or are we just, again, is it the only option? <laughs> or are we just desperate? There's so many... <laughs> Right. There's still, we can't even jump off this boat. We're still on it. So I think, yeah, bringing this back to, you know, we're all faced with kind of these choices or again, shaped by these experiences and this word in a way, what whatever it means. And so I'd be curious to kind of, as we wrap up here, what you might encourage people to ask themselves going forward, whether it's this year, how to take perhaps what we've talked about in this interview, some like food for thought or an actionable piece of advice to try and either process the things from the past or make moves and use these as opportunities or catalysts for creating some of those defining moments in their own lives. Yeah. I mean, I guess what I would say, and this can be very pandemic related, or you could relate it to any adversity, but I like your pointing out the fact that we're currently all experiencing an adversity that was not on the ACE list. Nobody saw this one coming. Um, But I think an important flip, and uh, it comes from the work of Bessel van der Kolk, who's a big trauma expert, and his, his quote, which is in the book somewhere, but it's has influenced my work as a psychologist of that to help people flip from what's happened to them to what they did to get out of it, to what they did about it. And people are doing something that I think a lot of people feel like I'm completely stuck in the pandemic. I'm This has taken my life sideways. I'm not happy. This is not the best year of my life and probably not for a lot of people. However, there are probably things that you're doing every day to get by, to adapt well in adversity. And so I, and oftentimes people, especially young people, they don't articulate or they haven't reflected on what they've done well or what they've done to survive or what they've done to thrive. And you have to help them like spell that out. So to think about whether it's an adversity from your past or it's the adversity in the pandemic, what have you done this year, if we're going to talk about the pandemic, to make it through? I mean, what have you done to make the year just a little bit better for yourself? And I don't mean you have to have read the 100 most important novels of all time or learned a new language, even if it's just, you know what, I've been going for walks more than I used to, or I've been cooking more than I used to, that that we're all doing things to make life a little bit better for ourselves. I am sure of it. But to own what those are and to see those is those are the things resilient people do. I mean, that that is being resilient. You're finding little ways to keep your sanity, little ways to get a foothold. Because what has been interesting for me with the pandemic is for people who haven't grown up in a home with adversity, you're getting a taste of it in that you're in a situation and you can't get out. You can't, there's nowhere you can go to get away from this. And that's what it's like to grow up in a home with adversity. There's, 
you can't get out and you have to wait for it to pass or you have to wait till you turn 18 and you can move out. That I think that's what the pandemic has been like for a lot of people. And I'm guessing that people are doing things to survive and to thrive, but they may not be giving themselves credit for what they're doing. I think that's really important, the part about kind of, again, this perspective and recognizing, okay, you are doing things, you are doing more than you realize. And as studies show, whether we like the word or not, there are often a lot of studies that show we as humans are much more resilient than we think. And we're not good at estimating how much things will affect us and how long it will take us to recover. We actually continually underestimate ourselves and are much better and at recovering or getting through or working through these things. And so one, that note of perspective, and then that part two of as the 20s or whatever defining decade, whenever it happens, tends to be finally that point where we're freed from something and can start kind of capitalizing or acting on using our own agency to create these defining moments to create that growth, perhaps thinking of this pandemic as that as well. This opportunity that when we are finally free, we will appreciate the simple pleasures more. We will go after things more and we will have perhaps more defining moments as a result of having experienced this adversity, which, as you said, is just a small sample of what people who have grown up with adversity experienced. And then the last thing I wanted to touch on was going back to when parents said, how can, you know, I help my child become more resilient? The word that popped into my mind was understanding. And I'm not necessarily sure why, but I, right now to everybody who's listening, I think you are doing all the right things, even if it feels like you're doing nothing Exactly. As Meg just said, every day you are doing things, whether you realize it or not. And I think that this understanding and perspective is such an important part of all of this. And by listening to this interview, you are doing something. And so exactly. So just wanted to congratulate everybody who is listening in and actively kind of understanding, seeking to better understand, and perhaps later on capitalize or make something else of this adversity and this adaptation that we're all going through, whether it's our whole lives, including the pandemic, or perhaps for some of us just for the first time, but that adversity, adaptation, and action. Thank you so much for giving us your time and taking us through this whole life cycle of evolution and understanding the things that happened to us when we were younger. And again, this understanding and being able to help people leverage that to work through it or create new opportunities as a result from it. So important at any stage of life, whether in that defining decade, your second defining decade of your life at any time. And of course, to remind us that love heals. Yeah, excellent. Absolutely. So thank you so, so much. And we'll be in touch. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you so much to each and every one of you for tuning in to listen to our show. If you like what you learned, and you know someone who might also like listening, please do share this podcast. You can also feel free to reach out to us anytime if you'd like to submit questions, requests for experts to have on the show, 
or if you'd like to share your positive feedback or constructive criticism. We'd love to hear what you think. It's the only way we can learn and grow along with you. Be sure to check out our website, follow us on Instagram at bbxx.world, and subscribe to the Book Club newsletter, where we send out even more resources to help you dive even deeper to the topics that we bring to you on the show. Once again, we encourage you to take what we discuss on this show and apply it in your everyday life. Because remember, better relationships equals better life.